This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Our next round of questions go to uh, Mr. Erskine Smith. Thanks very much. Um, we have Professor Geist uh, in the next panel, and because much of the work that we're doing at this committee focuses on copyright extension, um, I wanted to quote Mr. Geist, who said, the additional 20 years of protection beyond the international standard found in the Berne Convention will be costly for Canadians with little discernible benefit. And so I'm curious, why are we committed to extending uh, the copyright term for 20 years? Is this something that we put on the table, or, or is this something that we accepted because uh, the totality of the agreement? For the question, good morning. Um, that's the outcome of the of the negotiations, and it's it's part of the negotiations of the whole agreement. Fair. So I, I take that to mean that that's not something we put on the table, uh, but that's something we accepted because broadly, overall, the agreement's in our benefit. And uh, while this provision may not well be uh, overall, it's still worth it. For years, Canada resisted extending the term of copyright beyond the international standard of life of the author plus an additional 50 years. That appears to be coming to an end, since the USMCA, the Canada-US-Mexico Trade Agreement, requires an extension. The Canadian government has just launched a public consultation on the issue, identifying several accompanying measures to address concerns about the negative impact of term extension. For the many Canadians that participated in the recent copyright review process, the consultation document comes as a huge disappointment, as it seemingly rejects, with little legal basis, the review's recommendation on establishing a registration requirement for the additional 20 years that would benefit both creators and the public. The consultation is currently open until March 12th, and I would urge listeners concerned with copyright in the public domain to speak out. A link to the consultation document and details on providing your views can be found on the post for this episode at my website at michaelgeist.ca. Here to help sort through the issue and the likely implications is Duke University's Jennifer Jenkins. Professor Jenkins is a clinical professor of law teaching intellectual property and director of Duke's Center for the Study of the Public Domain where she heads its arts project, a project analyzing the effects of intellectual property on cultural production, and leads its annual Public Domain Day initiative. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you on. We're talking copyright term extension, and you're the director of the Center for the Study of the Public Domain at Duke. Can you tell me a bit about the center and what it does? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, we, so far as we know, we're the first university center dedicated to the study of the public domain as an essential and indispensable part of the intellectual property system. And so we study the value of the public domain to culture, to innovation, to speech, to science. And one of the things that we try to do is translate our research into accessible and hopefully entertaining formats. And so we have published two comic books in our Tales from the Public Domain series. 
They're freely available online. We published an open case book that anyone can download. It's available under a Creative Commons license and share, remix, version, giveaway, translate. Um, and very relevant to our conversation today, we launched an annual website celebrating Public Domain Day. So on January 1st of every year, we celebrate what is entering the public domain in the United States, uh, sometimes around the world, in order to shine a light on the value of that moment, that entry into the public domain of all these creative works and how it feeds creativity, how it enables access, how it enables preservation. And so in a nutshell, that's what we do at the center. Uh, it sounds like great work and uh, certainly I'm familiar with with some of the things you just described and uh, I'd recommend that everybody go out and, t- and check them out. Now, as you know, Canada is thinking about or in the process, I suppose, of extending its term of copyright. We resisted for a very long time. But as part of the trade agreement with the United States and Mexico, there was an undertaking to extend by an additional 20 years. The U.S., of course, extended the term many years ago. And can you describe a bit what the impetus for doing so was in the U.S.? In Canada, clearly it was, well, U.S. pressure coming out of the trade agreement. What? The U.S. pressuring other countries? Say it isn't so. Sure, I'd be happy to talk about the impetus in the U.S. And so we have extended our copyright term many times throughout history. And the most recent one, which is akin to yours, happened with the Copyright Term Extension Act, which was in 1998. So we've had 23 years to see the results of our term extension. The impetus for doing so was multifaceted. Uh, One is familiar. One was harmonization. Um, Harmonizing, for example, with the the term in Europe of life plus 70. Um, But there there, there were other forces in play as well. There was um, good old fashioned lobbying. And so there were some um, rice holders of very valuable blockbuster properties from the 1920s that were set to go into the public domain. And understandably, it was in their best interest to lobby for 20 extra years of of copyright protection and what we face in the US in Congress was a classic collective action, a classic collective action problem where the stakeholders um, who were interested in longer copyright terms were well represented um, and they spoke with a single voice. All of the citizens and groups, the librarians, the archivists, the historians, the educators, the hobbyists, the fans, the people who would be harmed by having all of this culture locked away for an additional 20 years. Um, they did not speak on the floor of Congress with quite as loud of a voice. And so back in 1998, our Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act gave us an extra 20 years, named, of course, after Sonny Bono, who was a congressman in the U.S. and also a musician of uh, Sonny and Cher, and who famously was in favor of perpetual copyright. Uh, When the CTEA, the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, was passed, he had recently tragically died quite young. And so his colleagues um, were naming this term extension after their beloved recently deceased uh, friend and colleague, and um, it, it, it passed handily. So that was that was part of the impetus in, in, in the U.S., the combination of sort of a you know, lopsided debate and also an effort to harmonize with parts of the world that had already extended their terms to life plus 70. 
Okay. So uh, a common story, I think, when we when we think about copyright reform everywhere, of course, that, yeah. that lo- the lobbying efforts for sure. So, so you know, the, given that that extension occurred more than 20 years ago, um, clearly there's been a chance to study the impact and, in a sense, give Canadians some sense of what, what we might expect if we, if we extend the term. Uh, so can you describe a, a little bit what the impact has been, I suppose, beyond the obvious that, that took works an extra 20 years to enter into the public? domain? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, I want to start with a famous quote, sometimes apparently misattributed to Einstein. The, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Um, you know, I feel like someone when their friend you know looks them in the eye and says, don't make the same mistakes I've made as an American. <laughs> like telling you our favorite people in Canada to please not make the same mistakes we made because 23 years afterwards we know it wasn't just a mistake it was a big mistake and at least from the U.S. we admire Canada's dedication to your citizens and to providing health care and education and libraries and putting 20 years on your copyright term really seems antithetical to everything that we think you Canada do better than us. Why was it a big mistake? Um, The benefits on the one hand, and, you know, we have economic modeling on this. We have five Nobel laureate economists telling us this, the incentives from adding an extra 20 years to the copyright term are minuscule. Um, The Nobel laureates modeled what the incentive would look like. So, you know, you're an author, Michael, you write things, I write things, I write these comic books. If I tell you, hey, you know, instead of life plus 70 years, so hopefully if you live another 50 years, instead of 100 years from now, your copyright is going to expire 120 years from now. What plausible additional incentive does that provide you or me to get out of bed and create another work. The benefits are minuscule. The eminent economists estimated that a 1% likelihood of earning 100 annually for 20 additional years, and this is the US starting 75 years in the future, is worth less in present value than seven cents today. So that's hardly a compelling economic incentive, right? So those are the benefits. What are the harms? The harms are to culture. The harms are to access. The harms are to education. We're locking away millions of older works. Those works, we're talking about 100 to 120 years in the future for authors that are going to live another 50 years. Most of those works by that time are no longer generating any revenue for the copyright holders. So for no good reason why, because the commercial lifespan of most works does not last that long. It would be wonderful if anybody still wanted to read my stuff 50, 60, 70, 100 years from now, but they probably won't. So nobody's making any money, but what's happening? Um, Historians find the historical record incomplete because that additional swath of 20 years is unavailable to them to freely build upon. So, you know, we have uh, stories in the United States, for example, by um, the American Association for Law Libraries talks about the onerous clearance process associated with trying to create an archive documenting the American South. Um, And they had to abandon their efforts to include what? Older culture that might be copyrighted, campaign songs, film excerpts, documents exploring the horrors of the chain gang and historical works or archives. Our historical record is incomplete. Um, artists find their cultural heritage, their distant 
past cultural heritage off limits. Documentarians find themselves unable to use works from the past. And so we're locking away an additional 20 years of culture for no good reason, because most of those older works, the works that you know would have fallen into the public domain after life plus 50 years, are not generating revenue anymore. They're not benefiting the rights holders. So really, it's it's all harm, Michael. And little, little if minuscule plausible benefit. The only plausible benefit is to the blockbuster works that are lucky enough. You know, maybe the works by J.K. Rowling, maybe the works by Beyonce that are lucky enough to still be commercially valuable, life plus 70 years. So if I asked you, if I told you, Michael, I said, okay, here, you know, I'm the, the Congresswoman Jenkins and I'm going to propose a law. I think it would be a great idea if we just take out of the public purse, out of the, you know, the, the, the tax money of Canadians, we should just take some money and transfer it to these blockbuster cultural works that are still valuable after life plus 50 years. You might say, but that's crazy. That's better than what we're talking about here, because not only are we transferring all of the uses that people could have made of those older works to the small, minuscule, tiny sliver percentage of works that are still commercially valuable, at the same time, we're locking away all the works that no longer retain commercial value, that are forgotten, that are obscure, that are lost somewhere in the bowels of a library of archive. At the same time, we're locking all that away from historians and educators and fans and hobbyists. It's worse. That's what you're looking at right now. If the law was actually framed, not just as, hey, let's have 20 more years of copyright, but as what we know from our experience in the US, what the costs and benefits actually are, I don't think any rational policymaker, including copyright fans, we love copyright. The public domain is a key part of copyright because it furthers the very thing that copyright is supposed to achieve, access to cultural works, feeding the creative news. No one would think that was a sane or rational or decent thing to do. That's what we know from the U.S. experience. All right, that's a that was great. Uh, and it, uh, not, <laughs> I feel not, strongly uh, about this, as you can as you can probably tell. Absolutely, I mean, not not great in terms of what happened, but great, great obviously is a description. Just so it's clear for Canadians, I when once the Sonny Bono Act was was enacted and this took effect, I mean, did this quite literally mean that there was two decades where nothing new or little new entered into the public domain? Yes. So in the U.S., what we decided to do is when we added 20 years to our copyright term, uh, we added 20 years not only prospectively to every work created from that day forward, but also, also retrospectively to works that were already in existence that had already been created. And so what that meant is that all the works that were set, they were right on the precipice, on the cusp of going into the public domain did not enter the public domain for another 20 years. The conveyor belt was stopped, Congress hit a giant pause button, and the public domain was frozen in time. And everyone had to wait the 20 years from 1999 until 2019, until a single published work re-entered the public domain. And what was interesting, Michael, is, you know, I feel like I work in this tiny, nerdy corner of the universe. Who cares about public domain day? Who's reading my site? It turns out that people are passionate about this. In 2019, when all those works that had been, you know, un, all those works that had not entered the 20 the public domain for 20 years, when they started going back into the public domain, I was on I was on CBS Morning News. Why does CBS care about this? People were so excited because they said, "Hey, 
you mean all these works are now free? There's a green light. We can use them. Our high school band can adapt and publicly perform them. Artists can build upon them. We can make them through an opera. There's there's a great deal of excitement surrounding the reentry of works into the public domain, showing just how much this means to the average person. Um, so yeah, we, we stopped the conveyor belt and um, it was only just a few years ago that any published works started going into the public domain again in the United States. Okay, well, that's the plan too. I should note that's the plan in Canada as well. It, it applies, it doesn't just start the clock with a new clock for new works being created. It applies to works that have yet to hit the public domain. Works that are in the public domain already stay there. Works mm-hmm. that still are under copyright uh, enjoy the benefit. Now, um, obviously, the you know, you, you, you've highlighted the kind the the kind of experience that the United States has had. What are mm-hmm. what are some of the perspectives of of some of the copyright leaders, people like from the Copyright Office and others that that now have the benefit of hindsight of seeing what this what the impact has been? Yeah, so you know, I try a lot of times. Reporters ask me, well why would Congress have passed this law in 1998? Well, some of the copyright leaders at the time did seem comfortable with it. And I think part of it, aside from the fact that, you know, wonderful people like Carlos Santana and Don Headley and Bob Dylan testified before Congress that they thought it was a good idea. But um, we love copyright, including you and me, right? We've dedicated our lives to this. And there's maybe an intuition that if copyright is good, which it is, it spurs creativity. It gives important rights to creators. Maybe more copyright is better. That's an intuition. It's kind of like, but you know, we we know it's not true. So a lot of us grew victory gardens during the pandemic. And we know from experience in our garden that plants like water, artists like copyright. More water is not always better. At a certain point, if you flood the plant, it dies, right? Um, and now with the benefit of hindsight to your question, the very people we were talking about, copyright leaders, we have two former heads of our copyright office in the United States saying with the benefit of hindsight and retrospect that the copyright term extension was a quote, big mistake. So Mary Beth Peters, who's wonderful. She said, you know what? The copyright term's too long. She said this at a conference uh, next to us at UNC. And she said, probably, no, not probably. It was a big mistake, but one that Congress can make. And then more recently in an article that you can Google online called the, the Next Great Copyright Act, another former head of the copyright office named Maria Palante said, we think the copyright term is too long. And check this out, Michael, she suggested a remedy. She said, perhaps the law, and this may sound familiar, could shift the burden of those last 20 years from the user to the copyright owner. So that copyright owners would what? Have to opt in to the extra 20 years, have to assert their continued interest in exploiting their work by registering with the copyright office in a timely manner. What does that do? That means that if you're one of those lucky blockbuster works, and I mean, economic studies suggest that between after life plus 50 years, maybe somewhere under 1% of works would be in that category. If you're lucky enough to be J.K. Rowling's heirs, bravo, you can opt in and you get the life plus 70 term. But if you're the other 99% plus of works where no one's benefiting from it and the works are languishing in obscurity, then your work goes into the public domain. A former head of our copyright office in writing proposed that. And I want to add something else, Michael, because you talked about copyright leaders. Victor Hugo proposed the same thing. Victor Hugo. 
Um, your Francophone and English-speaking listeners may know Victor Hugo, of course, uh, one of the architects of our international copyright system, one of the most passionate and most famous proponents of the rights of authors, in a speech, and we're, we, we, we translated this uh, from the French, he said, quote, create a system of literary property, Victor Hugo, but at the same time, create the public domain. The law could give to all publishers the right to publish any book after the death of the author. This is not after life plus 70. This is after the death of the author. The only requirement would be to pay the direct heirs a very low fee, which in no case would exceed 5 or 10% of the net profit. This simple system, which combines the unquestionable property of the writer with the equally incontestable right of the public domain, was suggested by an 1836 commission in France. So this is Victor Hugo saying, hey, we need a balance. After the death of the author, why not have them opt in to continued copyright protection and get paid a very low fee? But people would have, actually, this is more of a compulsory license. Um, anyone would have the right to publish the books on a very low fee. So that's, that's two heads of the Copyright Office. And that's Victor Hugo from 1878. Okay, proposing a more balanced copyright system in order to benefit who was Victor Hugo passionate about in order to benefit authors and the progress of the Enlightenment, because it's hard <laughs> to create and to be an author if you can't draw upon your own culture, your own past, if you can't draw upon the public domain. That's that's great again. Um, and it provides, I think, actually a Perfect segue. Uh, you mentioned Maria Palante calling for a registration system, opting into the additional 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as you know, Canada seemed for a while to be potentially heading in that direction. So we held a copyright review that was mandated uh, within our statute that required an extensive review and a committee heard from enormous numbers of Canadians, people literally almost every stakeholder in, sort of in, the, in the copyright world in Canada took the time to participate. And one of their recommendations was, in fact, to establish a registration. The committee said, well, listen, if we have to extend the term of copyright to comply with the treaty, then we need to find a way to, to limit the harm. And so to some of your points, uh, it is not a secret to Canadians that this does create the prospect of real harm. They suggested an opt-in system through registration would be an effective way to try to limit or might be an effective way to try to limit some of that harm. Yeah. Fast forward to where we are now, and the government is starting to move forward with implementation with this consultation document, and they've really sidelined the notion of registration, talking about all sorts of concerns. It's not widely used. There may be international copyright issues associated with it, even though, as you mentioned, we've got former head uh, one of the former heads of the Copyright Office in the United States recommending precisely that system a few years that. ago. Uh, so they don't want to do that. They are talking about a number of other, uh, what they call accompanying measures. So I guess the, st my starting question for you is, is, are there any so-called accompanying measures in the United States? Was there anything done to try to limit the concerns around the term extension? 
Not much. Um, so one of the accompanying measures was um, in Section 108H of our Copyright Act that accompanied the Copyright Term Extension Act. Um, and it allows a very limited group, libraries, archives, qualifying institutions, um, to preserve works during the last 20 years of the term. But, okay, so <laughs> that sounds good, right? Only if, I'm sorry if this is my computer that's making this noise, it only applies if the work in question is not subject to normal commercial exploitation, or if the library cannot obtain a copy or phonorecord of the work at a reasonable price. So it's extremely limited and all, you know, um, all the great mass digitization efforts you might think about. Um, we're living in a pandemic right now. You talked to Brewster Kale of the uh, emergency of the, of, the, of the Internet Archive. I think we are all living at a time where we realize how valuable it is to have our culture digitized and available on the Internet, particularly, you know, older stuff that no one no one's still benefiting from. Um, Google Books is not going to be able to rely on that exception. And even the libraries and archives that are contemplated by it, this is our, our 108H, our accompanying measure, <laughs> can only do so if they can't buy a copy at a reasonable price or if the work's not being exploited. So that was very limited. Um, the There have been efforts to pass orphan works legislation in the United States. They so far have failed. Um, so the Copyright Office, again, is very aware of the harm of this long copyright term. And one of the one of, one of the big harms is this growing limbo of orphan works. What's an orphan work? It's a, a work, generally an older work, where even if I wanted to pay to get permission to chat with the copyright owner in order to use it, I can't because the copyright owner can't be located, can't be identified, identified, can't be found. That happens a lot with older works because companies go out of business, they merge, people die, things are lost, they get divorced. After life plus 70, 70 I mean, 50, 55, 60, 65 years, who are you going to call, right? So with orphan works where you can't even find the person who owns the copyright in a work, <laughs> Continued copyright really does no good. And our own copyright office, again, we're talking about the copyright leaders in the United States. They did a years long study. They said they share the concern with many in our community that the uncertainty surrounding the ownership of orphan works doesn't serve the objectives of our system. Their frustration, the liability risk, a major cause of gridlock in the digital marketplace. They tried, they failed. Um, we were unable to pass orphan works legislation. And so um, our accompanying measures were exceptionally limited and even our post hoc efforts to do something about the orphan works problem thus far have not yielded fruit. Okay. So limited, very, very limited success. It's, limited. it's notable that uh, the Canadian consultation document cites the U.S. example as one of the things to think about. It sounds like you're saying that um, it's these the, the the approach is so limited in scope that its its impact is exceptionally limited. It just doesn't really move the dial in any meaningful way. Not really, um, you know. And yeah, not really. And what I mean, you mentioned that the registration option has been sidelined. That's really a shame, Michael, because you know that's a very clean way to minim to, to reserve some of the contemplated benefits and minimize the harms from the term extension because as we talked about if, if you're lucky enough to have a work that's still uh, generating income you can register and get your extra 20 years and all of the other works you know um, the forgotten works come into the public domain for us to access and translate and make cheaper and use 
Um, and in a footnote, you mentioned international treaty problems. Um, Palante put in a footnote that she at least arguably didn't think there was a burn convention problem because the term in the burn convention is life plus 50. And again, I will I will leave it to international copyright experts to debate this. If you think of the registration not as a formality, but maybe as a tax or something, um, she did drop a footnote saying she didn't think there were necessarily treaty problems with that for the copyright nerds out there. So it's a shame that that's been sidelined because that's that's a that's a very direct way to ameliorate the well-known harm uh, caused by the term extension. But um, some of the other measures you're considering at least might um, exceptions, more robust exceptions than we have for libraries and museums and archives might at least um, stave off some of the harm. Yeah, no, it, it addresses that issue. You know, I think frustratingly for for many Canadians focused on copyright, we've had Supreme Court of Canada decisions dating back not quite as long as the Sonny Bono term extension, but in that general vicinity, I suppose, with our court talking about user rights and the need for balance and that recognition of the role that users play in copyright. And to see exceptions proposed that are so limited in scope and limited to, to who they're available feels like we're kind of moving backwards to a time when that was really the emphasis. And it's, it's great to see libra libraries, archives, and museums gain some of that, that potential access if that's what we're about to do. But as you suggest, uh, a registration process basically benefits everyone, including creators who want that additional term. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, as it comes as close to, to not, not a win-win, but to a balanced solution, allowing both, you know, both all of, all of the various stakeholders and interests to benefit, as I could think of. And in the United States, even subsequent to the, the Elder case, which was the failed challenge to the Copyright Term Extension Act, um, uh, something called the Public Domain Enhancement Act was proposed, and it, it was along those lines. Um, a, you know, a minimal nominal fee opt-in for the, for the extra copyright term. So it's a shame that that's been, been sidelined. Well, we're going to try to at least put it back on the agenda, and that's one of the reasons there's a consultation that is ongoing uh, until March 12th for now, and Canadians have the opportunity to speak out and uh, insist that the part of the copyright review said this is the right way to go, and certainly based on the, the experience and the evidence that you bring to bear, it sounds like in a difficult situation, one in which there are no real winners, it certainly make, has the potential to make the best of a, of a bad policy choice. Yeah, and I want to emphasize that this is this is about creators and copy and, and copyright holders too. Um, the point of the public domain is is to benefit. One of the points of the public domain, yes, it enables education, enables um, access. Things get cheaper. You had Paul held on, and he gave you his empirical work. But creators build on the past. And one of the things I hear from every public domain day is all these excited creators from, you know, high school kids who feel like they can finally use all of these older works um, to the great Gatsby went into the public domain in the U.S. this year. And, you know, we have works coming out. We have a prequel called Nick. And the author was astounded to find out that great Gatsby was still copyrighted, but he patiently waited until it entered the public domain. And now his, you know, his his origin story of the, the, the Nick character in the great Gatsby can come out. So, so um, part of what the, our own copyright office, once again, um, described the public domain as the second part, the second part of the life cycle of a copyrighted work. Um, that's when creative works can, can feed, can inspire, can be part of the creative inputs of future creators. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a good, this is pro-copyright, right? This is, this is a balanced copyright system is one that has a robust public domain um, and is not only 
people we would think of as users, but creators themselves who are conspicuous consumers of the public domain. Think of everything that Shakespeare's works have yielded. Um, his works belong to us. You know, that's why we can make things like 10 Things I Hate About You or Romeo Must Die, everything from, you know, Rosencrantz and Gillenstern are dead, everything from serious literary works to whimsical remakes. This is, these are all creative acts that are enabled by the public domain. And so that's a good thing, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's not an either or. This is good for the very constituents that the copyright system is supposed to serve. Jennifer, thank you so much uh, for the work that you're doing and certainly for the passion that, that you bring around this issue and for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for the work that you're doing. I, I am a, I'm a very, uh, whenever I have a question about Canadian copyright law, I go straight to your blog. So you, you are, you, you are my window into everything Canadian copyright. I think you're probably the, the number one expert in the universe on it. So I really appreciate all your work. It's extremely helpful and extremely timely. And I appreciate your efforts to try to, um, to try to ensure that the Canadian government doesn't do more harm than good in complying with its treaty obligations here. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for those kind remarks. And as I say, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <music>